Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And as always, I'm so excited to be here today. Thank you for tuning in to the Firetime Podcast final episode of season two, which is going to be the Q&A episode. Now, I just have to say, I am so excited for this. It's been amazing to get all of your questions sent to me over the last few months, and it's going to be really cool diving in to tackle those. Now, as we jump into this, I, I just want to mention a couple things really, really quick here. But, you know, the second season of this podcast has been absolutely amazing. And we have hit some huge, huge milestones that I want to shout out. You know, one of them is that thanks to you guys, we are getting thousands and thousands and thousands of downloads, which has just been unreal. I mean, it's super humbling for me to just see the response that this has gotten. And it's actually being downloaded in every state of the US and every province of Canada, which is just amazing. I mean, one, one of the things when I started out doing this is I wanted to be able to start giving a voice to a new perspective in our industry and to see it take off like this and to be able to get feedback and questions from you guys and hear how this content is helping to grow your businesses. It's just absolutely insane. It floors me. So tonight, I'm actually sitting here in Kent, Washington. I wasn't going to do this on a little road trip I'm on, but I decided, you know, what the heck, I'm going to bring my gear and we'll just get started knocking out this episode. And I think it's going to be super, super fun. Um, so today is a Q&A episode, like I mentioned. And first of all, thank you to everybody that sent in questions. I tried to pick the ones that um, kind of summarize the majority of the questions that I get so that we can jump into it and hopefully cover everything. If there's something that you wanted answered that didn't get addressed here, you're welcome to send me an email outside of this and I will do my best to get back to you and to try to give you some content for your business as well. But with all that said, we are going to jump into this. And like I said, these questions are from legit businesses that are working just like you to serve customers, to make money, and to figure out how to grow their sales. So I'm excited for how this can help shape your business as well. And hopefully you get some good perspective from it. So as we jump into this, we're going to start out with a word from Kyle in Massachusetts. And Kyle's someone that I actually met a couple weeks back in Minneapolis. And Kyle, it was just awesome to meet you and to hear about the cool things that you're doing with your business. But this is a word that he sent me that I think is really good. And he said, I find that moving forward with new technology and keeping in touch with customers is a common theme through your episodes, and it's something I resonate with. I'm currently trying to challenge my company to simplify its procedures by prodding at the, because it's just the way we've always done it, habits. Effectively, I'm trying to make it so stupidly easy to buy from us that there's no excuse not to. Nice, Kyle. Although I realize that it needs to happen slowly, as a newbie, I see a lot of inefficiencies in the industry and especially in my own company that I'm excited to tackle. And I want to piggyback on this and say that I think that's the right mentality, that when it comes to implementing new processes and procedures, this stuff takes time. And the things that I've been talking about over the course of this podcast have taken me years and years and years to think about, and I'm still on the journey implementing that. So I think it's one of those things, it's very easy when you hear 
new conversations about things and you get ideas to think that you have to go change everything at once. And and I think that you're doing the right thing, Kyle, by attacking that slowly. Now, one reason I wanted to mention this is that idea of the because that's always the way that we've done it mentality is something that I think kills businesses. Now, that's not to say that you should ignore traditional wisdom or that things that have worked in the past don't work now, but I think that to rely on doing things because it's the way you've always done it sets you up to become a dinosaur very quickly and get the rug pulled out from underneath you. So I know I've talked with Grant Falco about this a lot, but anytime I hear because that's the way we've always done it, my instinct is start pushing because there might be something there if you can do things differently. Dave Ramsey is someone that I look up to quite a bit, and one of the core values of their company is we do not have sacred cows because we shoot them. And very often when you say it's the way it's always been done, that becomes a sacred cow that a lot of the time doesn't have justification behind it. So Kyle, that was an awesome comment, and thanks a ton for writing in. Like I said, it was awesome to meet you in Minneapolis a couple weeks ago. Okay, question number two is from my friend Marty Holstrom out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And this is something that Marty asked me when I was teaching a couple weeks back in Minneapolis at HHT Summer Summit, and I thought it was a great question, so I also wanted to address it over the podcast. And what Marty asked is, when I was teaching, I was teaching about digital web strategy and basically how to do your website and your digital marketing properly so that you can make the highest impact with customers for the least amount of dollars spent. And in that, we started talking about the language we should use with customers. And Marty asked me specifically to expand on what it means to only talk about the problems that your customer has. Because that's something that I mention a lot, but I don't know if we've ever actually uh, decided to dive deep on it in the podcast. So Marty, I'm piggybacking your question from last week because I think it's important for the rest of the podcast audience to hear this. But You know, you hear a lot of famous sales teachers talk about solving customers' problems, being customer-focused. I think about Zig Ziglar. Donald Miller from StoryBrand articulates this so well. But the idea is that if you are running a business, there's only one reason that your customers are coming to see you. And that one reason is because they have a problem and it needs to be solved. And so anything that comes out of your mouth needs to address the problems that they have and nothing else. Because... If you're talking about things outside of their problem, it's just white noise and the customer's tuning you out. An example, this is is kind of funny. I haven't told the story in the podcast, but I I told it the other day when I was in Kansas City. So I'm getting ready to fly out to Kansas City for a speaking gig. And it's the night before I leave and me and my wife are hanging out watching Netflix. And all of a sudden we hear this scamper, scamper, scamper across the ceiling of our living room. And we look at each other and we kind of hear that scamper, scamper, scratch, scratch, scratch again. And we think to ourselves, oh no, we've got mice in between our first and second floor. So I'm sitting here looking to fly to town in just a day or so. I'm getting ready to leave my wife and children behind. And I'm thinking, I don't want mice in my house. So what do we do? We jump on the internet. We're trying to find someone that can come out and solve our problem. And I'm just telling you that when we pulled up our computer, we did not have a rational conversation about, you know what would be really good? I think we should find a great family-owned business. You know, someone that's been around for 30 years that has a great, like a really cute slogan or a really cute, you know, company phrase. No, we, we thought we have a problem and it needs to be solved. And if the words on your website do not address the problem that I have, I'm hitting the back button and I'm going somewhere else. Now, 
in that context, that had to do with their website. But this really does apply to a lot of situations that if you're on the sales floor or if you're selling to a builder or if you're talking to a designer, whatever your situation is, if you have a customer, they have a set of problems. And the way that StoryBrand articulates it so well is that if you talk all about yourself, the customer starts to tune you out because they're only there for one reason and it's to have their problem solved. But when you can speak in a language about the, the problems that they have and about your solutions to them, all of a sudden the customer starts seeing that you have medicine. So if I'm calling around to these different places and I, I call and say, hey, can you come get these mice out of my house? I'm on, I'm on a timeline. I'm, get, I'm trying to get this figured out. And someone starts to tell me about, well, you know, we're actually booked out four weeks because we service so many customers and we started the company 30 years ago and that's actually led to a lot of repeat business because we're trusted by so many folks and so that pushes our schedule out. In my mind, I'm, I'm tuning it out. I don't care. I'm moving on to the next person. But when someone can, can look at me and say, hey, Tim, we understand how scary it is to have rodents in your house. That's why we offer 24-hour assistance. Now, it costs a little bit more, but we want to make sure your family is taken care of. All of a sudden, those are answers to my problem. And so the word that I would give is anytime you are saying or writing anything that's going to go in front of your customer, think about, are the words coming out of my mouth solving a problem or are they talking about me? Because if they're talking about me, it's just white noise and it doesn't matter. Marty, that was an awesome question and I hope that that does it justice. Okay, so next up is from Rebecca Nestle in Polsbo, Washington. What's up, Rebecca? Thank you so much for writing in. <laughs> so she gets kind of personal here and she asked the question. She says, Tim, I'm curious to know your personal plans and goals for advancing this industry. There are some amazing people at the heart of it. Well, Rebecca, you are absolutely right. There are some incredible people at the heart of this industry. And when I think about my journey, I am approaching my 15th year in this industry, which is really weird to say. And what I have fallen in love with is, yes, I love the products. I love sales. I love marketing. But I have fallen in love with the people of our industry. And what I'll say is this. There's a lot of irons that I have in the fire right now. And over the next few years, I'm going to have to decide and stay fully unified in just one direction. Right now, I'm fortunate enough that I can kind of dabble in a lot of things. It's not always going to be that way. Long-term, my goal is to help businesses in this industry win in the new landscape. And over the last 10 years, we've seen business change a ton, and there's a totally new landscape of business that's going on. And I'm still figuring out exactly what it looks like, but... I want to be somebody that can help manufacturers, distributors, dealers, and customers ultimately work with amazing businesses in our industry so that they can be warm and safe in their house. And I think that there's a way to actually disrupt ourselves in a way that gives power and credibility to amazing mom and pop businesses and local retailers. And so I think that long term, I want to find a way to do that to help businesses win in the new landscape that is out there. Because the truth of the matter is, if we don't change and if we don't disrupt ourselves, someone else is going to. So it's a really good question. And, uh, you know, there's definitely more that I can share with you in the coming months, but that's something that is really on my heart right now. Yeah, really good question, Rebecca. Next up, question number four. This is from Jared Connors in Frederick, 
Fredericton, New Brunswick. You can say how often you can see how often I say that. Now, I got to give a shout out number one to Jared. We've corresponded a decent amount via email and text, and he's doing some amazing things out there. And I have to say, you know, there's just been a explosion of this podcast in Eastern Canada, and I think it's just incredible. So, Jared, I'm really excited that you wrote in this question. So, here's something he said. He asks. I was listening to the podcast about the Google ads, et cetera, and following up with customers after a quote. How often do you think we should follow up and should there be a schedule to do that? It's a great question, Jared. So what I would say is this, you know, when it comes to a follow-up, I would defer to what Ray Edwards says, and this didn't come from Ray. It comes from, you know, years and years of the direct mail marketing business, but I think that Ray is an amazing practitioner and he's the one that I first heard this from. Ray Edwards says that you follow up with a customer until they fly, buy, or die. And I am in full agreement of that. I would follow up, follow up until they fly, buy, or die. Now, I would recommend a minimum of seven times. Just bare, bare minimum. And part of that is because the psychology of they say it takes seven touches with a business before you're ready to do business with them. I think that Carter and Taylor referenced that when they did the episode here on Closing Commander. But I would just say at least seven times and you should honestly do it until the customer either flies away, dies, drops off the face of the earth, or buys from you or from somebody else. And Here's the way that I think about it. I, I get a lot of pushback sometimes where folks say, you know, no, I don't want to bug my customers. I, I, I just want to let them make the decision. And that sounds really good, but it actually doesn't work. And the example I give is it's like when my dentist tries to get a hold of me. So I'm a really busy guy. I'm traveling a lot. I've got a busy home life and I got a lot of extracurricular activities like this podcast and, and other things. So to nail me down for a dentist appointment is really difficult. And what ends up happening is when the dentist calls me and they leave me a voicemail, I almost always screen the call because I'm busy. And then at the end of the day, I'll check the voicemail and I'll delete it and think, oh yeah, 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 I need to schedule my appointment. Well, the dentist doesn't just leave me to say, oh well, yeah, Tim, he'll get back to us when he can. No, because it's out of sight, out of mind. I mean, once I delete that voicemail, done. I'm into the next day. I'm, I'm moving. I'm, I'm, I'm working on things. So the dentist calls me back, and I'll screen it again. And then they call me back, and I screen it again. They'll call me and call me and call me. And eventually, the dentist gets a hold of me. And when they do, I don't pick up the phone and scream at them, saying, why on earth are you calling me? I told you to leave me alone. What happens is I pick up the phone, and I say, thank you so much for following up with me. I've been busy. I know I need to do this. Let's get it in the books. Your customers are no different. So I would highly encourage you to follow up with them consistently. Be totally gracious. If they tell you, hey, we're still thinking about it, we're not sure, call us back in a month, honor that request. If they tell you to stop emailing them, stop emailing them. But the truth of the matter is that your customer is coming to you, again, because they have a problem, they're trying to make their life better. And if they're trying to make their life better and you have a solution that is going to give them that to make their life better, then it's your duty to follow up with them. It, now, it's up to them to make the decision. They can say no, but I, I really believe you got to follow up again and again and again and again. And I was actually, when I was in Minneapolis last week, I was talking with a couple of folks that work at the fireside stores out there, Andy and Adam, and they were talking about a huge leap that they'd had in sales recently. And they said, the people that win in sales are the people that follow up. I could not agree more. Now, when you ask about if there should be a schedule to do that, yeah, and I think that this is open-handed. Uh, you know, I would recommend 
following up more frequently as the time is as as there as it's a closer time to when they were in the store and as that time gets further and further out then you could make your follow up a little bit more sparse you could start out with follow up every other day for three times and then follow up three days later and then a week later then two weeks later but one thing that's really good too is ask the customer when you should follow up I mean, they know why you're calling. If you call them to touch base on something, to let them know uh, a little fact that you didn't talk about in the showroom and you ask, hey, so are you guys ready to move forward with this? And they say, oh, no, we're still getting our, our options together. Don't say, oh, okay, thanks, and hang up the phone. Say, hey, I totally understand that. When do you think that you'll have those options ready? And they might say, oh, I don't know. We're going to go shopping next weekend. And you say, okay, Perfect. What if I gave you a call on Monday after the weekend's over and we could take a look at our proposal versus theirs and you can make the decision that's best for you? If you can be gracious like that and work with your customer on when to follow up, follow up becomes a lot easier. And then when you call them back, a lot of the time they're thankful because they forgot about it and they say, oh yeah, thank you. I appreciate you. I know, I know that we did, we did tell you to call us on Monday. So I hope that that's a good answer for you on follow up. Uh, yes, I think you should until they fly by or die, minimum of seven times and you should have a schedule, but honestly work with your customer on that. Jared, I hope that answers your question. Thank you again for writing in and and, and from listening all the way from Eastern Canada. Up next here. Oh, okay. So this is actually a sweet question from my buddy, Corey Dupay, who was our guest from last week. And I just got to say, if you guys haven't listened to that episode, go listen to it. It's called People Buy from People They Like. Corey is amazing. If you want to learn to sell to high-end clientele, he's the guy. So Corey's out of Seattle and he writes this and he actually says, you know, Tim, you talk a lot about sales and things like that, but what do you do personally about work-life balance? And that's a really good question. It's something that I actually want to dive into deeper as we get into later seasons of the podcast, but we haven't talked about it a ton here. And and I mean, if you're selling on a level that Corey is, he is selling a ton. I mean, more than most businesses are. And and he's doing it by himself. When you're doing that kind of volume and when you're busy and you got tasks and you're goal oriented, it's so easy to make your life become your job. You never come up for air and people lose marriages. They, they, you know, strain their relationships with kids and loved ones and friends and it can put you in a, a really bad spot. So I think it's very worthwhile to address this. This is what I think about when it comes to work-life balance. So for me, I've kind of given up on work-life balance. I I don't know if it's as simple as having a teeter-totter where I want my work and my life to kind of be the same weight. The way that I look at it is work-life harmony. And I'm a musician, and if you're a musician, you know that, that harmony is taking two different notes and it's overlapping them in a way that makes sense and brings out the best in both of them. And so the way that I look at it is, is I think you, hopefully you find something that you like. So for me, I, I love my day job at Fireside. I love a lot of the extracurricular activities I'm doing with this podcast. I'm speaking to businesses. I love my family. I love playing basketball. I love reading. There's all these things that I like to do. And so for me, I look for a way to harmonize that. Now, because of this new age of business that we live in, a lot of jobs can be done mobile and remote. Not all of them, but a lot of them can. So for me, what has helped is as I can work remote, that starts to give me bits of flexibility to set aside 
different times with my family. And so maybe I could wake up early and bust out a couple hours worth of work so that I could get extra time with my family when I'm home and it's a win-win. So I would look for ways to harmonize that. You know, the reality is Tim Rethlake talked about this in the episode earlier this season about the seven habits of highly effective salespeople is that you're a holistic person. You're the same person at home that you are at work. And if you're neglecting time with your wife and kids for the sake of your job, it's ultimately going to be bad for your business. So I would look for ways to harmonize it. You know, I would look for ways to, if it works, to bring your family into what you do and to draw clear lines of when you need to be off the grid, be off the grid. So my goal is when I get home from work, I am totally disconnected from anything that's work-related while I'm with my kids for dinner time, while I'm hanging out with my wife after that. Maybe later on at night, if we're watching Netflix or something, I'll bust down my computer and I'll start getting some stuff done. But my thing is that when I'm with the family, distraction is it's just such a killer. And so my goal is to put my phone away, turn my notifications off, and I'm not perfect at this, but when I'm with my family, I want to be fully, fully, fully present. But then there's other areas too where, you know, if I'm on vacation and it's not that big of a deal, like, I don't know, sometimes I'll keep my email with me. I know it's important to disconnect, but, you know, there's times where if I'm taking a walk or something, I don't know, it's just not that big of a deal for me to bust out a couple emails and knock that stuff out. So I don't know if that's a definitive answer, but what I would say is, the times when you really need to be disconnected and set aside with your family, I would draw hard lines and don't compromise. But the times when you can do both, like if you're just watching Netflix at night, you know, find a way to uh, to be flexible and find a way to bring your work into your personal life and, and vice versa because we're, we're holistic people. So I know that's something that's worth a lot more thought and we can kind of dive into that a little bit deeper, but that's my two cents. Now, actually, I'm going to back up and say one more thing about this. I would highly recommend when it comes to, to harmonizing your what you do at work versus what you do with your family and even just for yourself, I would I would intentionally plan out your your months and, and, and the time of year for vacations and for getaways and things like that where you're specifically investing in yourself and the people that you love. So I've actually got a dilemma coming up here. I've got a camping trip that I planned uh, six months ago with a group of friends I used to play music with and we've been wanting to do this for a long time. Now, my schedule has been getting busier and busier and busier with speaking gigs, and I've also got a family to balance, and so right now, I'm having to make the decision between, do I go out for this opportunity to speak to a group, or do I go on this camping trip that was really important to me that I planned six months ago, and it's something that I'm still working on to see if I can flex dates to do both, but at the end of the day, I got to make a hard decision, and frankly, if you planned it in advance, and it's connecting with loved ones and and family members, that's what you got to do. So, Corey, I hope that helps give an answer. I know that that's not, like I said, super definitive, but I would focus really hard on work-life harmony. How can you get the best of both worlds from those two notes that are different? That's the way that I think about it. Okay, so this next question comes from Tom Manzadez in Atlanta, Georgia. And Tom, I'm so sorry, I probably just butchered your last name. Um, Tom is someone from the garage door industry and we've just exchanged some cool emails and we've, we've talked back and forth about this. And he's got a really good comment here about the resources episode when we talk about the book, The Four Disciplines of Execution. And here's Tom's question. He says, you inspired me to buy a copy of 4DX. I love it. It's exactly what our sales team needs to be more effective. My question for you is, when you introduced 4DX to your team, did you do it in-house or did you get outside consulting help? 
Says easy, does hard, right? <laughs> if you launched it in-house, any advice for the neophytes? So, Tom, it's a great question. And for those of you that haven't heard that episode, go back and listen to the one that's all about resources to help you win from earlier this season. I talk about books and podcasts and things that have helped me. So the four disciplines of execution is something that I think is just tremendous. I I bought this book for a lot of friends. I I think it's just an amazing book for learning how to execute on ideas so that they can become reality. I'll give the premise of the book really quick, and you can go back to that episode and listen to it more if you wanted. But basically, the four disciplines of execution, if you want to be able to execute ideas so that they can become reality, step one is you have to focus on the wildly important. So the idea is... When you're setting goals, you can't set goals for things that would just already happen on their own. You have to set goals for giant, hairy, audacious goals and tasks that would never, ever happen unless something intentional switched within your company. So focus on the wildly important. Discipline number two is measure lead measures, not lag measures. The short version of this is that lag measures are things that are important, but lag behind. So like if you have a a margin goal for this month, well, that's great, but the measurement lags behind. So if you have a margin goal for July you're not going to know what that margin was until you get into August and you can tally the numbers. So it's an important measure, but it doesn't help you achieve anything because you get it so late. A lead measure, on the other hand, is something that is predictive to move the needle on your lag measure, but you also control it. So if your if your lag measure is, I want to get this margin percentage this month, then you got to start reverse engineering. What are the things I can actually control now that are predictive to help me? So one of those things might be, we're going to have our, our, our senior estimator double check all of our salespeople's estimates to make sure that they're charging the right materials to the job sites. They're not just throwing stuff in uh, carte blanche because we already quoted it and it's too late. We know that that would help improve margin and we know it's something that we can control. So those are the things that you want to focus on. There's predictive measures that will move the needle in the lag measures that are important. So discipline number two is focus on the lead measures. Discipline number three is create a compelling scoreboard. And this is just really self-explanatory. You want a public scoreboard, especially for sales teams, where everybody sees who's contributing and who is moving the needle for you. And then number four is you create a cadence of accountability. So what I'll say is this, is that when we introduced this, we started it at the beginning of the year. And I'd been explaining for the few weeks prior to this the difference between lead and lag measures. So my team was starting to think a little bit about measuring the things that we could control that were predictive to move the needle. So the way that we did it, I got a young guy on my on my staff, and I told him, his name's Eric, and I said, Eric, your job for this meeting is to make us the best Bloody Marys that we've ever had. So Eric goes and he and he brings in bacon and asparagus and you know green olives, and he's got this giant pitcher of Bloody Mary mix. And we've carved out a half day. We got pancakes, we got Bloody Marys, we got sausage, we're eating a breakfast. And for four hours, we started throwing out lead measures at the board. I mean, a long time. And we ended up covering this whiteboard. We must have had 30 ideas up there of lead measures that would be predictable to move the needle on our big goals. So what we did after that is we said, okay, we got 30 of them here. We're going to pick two. What we did is then team members had to come up, they had to argue for their ideas. So we instantly started voting voting some of them off the island. But eventually you get to the point where you got six lead measures that are really, really good, but I mean, you can't, no one can focus on six things. You may as well focus on none. And so we said, no, we're going to pick two lead measures. That's it. We're only going to focus on those two things. 
And it took a while, and we, people had to bring their A-game to fight for their ideas to prove why they would move the needle more than anything else, but we solidified it down to two lead measures that we, that we would keep track of. After that, I had to work on creating a scoreboard and figuring out as the leader, how can I measure these lead measures, because it's not something that we've done before, and that takes a lot of time for a leader. And then after that, we decided that we would have a weekly WIG meeting. Now again, WIG stands for Wildly Important Goal. We met off-site at a coffee shop. The meeting took... 20 minutes. It wasn't long. Bought everybody a cup of coffee. We said in the meeting, there's no whirlwind allowed. So no cell phones, no laptops. It's done. It's off. And if anyone starts bringing whirlwind conversation into the meeting, like complaining about an installer or something you can't control or a problem job, whatever it is, if that whirlwind gets brought into the meeting, we instantly stop the meeting. We say, nope, the whirlwind stays outside. We're here to focus on our goals. So in those WIG meetings, it was really simple. We just talked about what worked last week based on the commitments that we made. Then we'd review our score, scoreboard to see if the commitments that we made last week actually moved the needle. And then based on that, we committed to new tasks that we would do this week to help increase the productivity of our lead measures. Now, none of this is perfect and it takes time, but that was something that was very successful for us. So we didn't bring in any outside consultants. You know, I think that people want to be a part of a winning team. And if you can outline good lead measures and get your team involved in them, it gets pretty exciting. And so I would just say, I think you can do it yourself. I, you know, you're welcome to shoot me an email. I'd love to offer you whatever advice I could, but that's a really good question. And it's something that's been very, very helpful for us. Next up here, question number eight. This is from Andrew in Port Angeles, Washington. Andrew is someone that I met a couple months back in Seattle at the NWHPBA conference. Awesome guy that's doing some really cool things out at that store. And he says this, hey, Tim, I love your podcast. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do them. I have a very young and unseasoned staff. One of the things I struggle with is inspiring my employees to care about the business for more than just a paycheck. Do you think there's something that I can do to help with this? Andrew, it's an amazing question. And I think that business leaders all over the country are shaking their head and nodding when you ask this question, because this is something that everyone is asking. How can we get employees to care about this business for more than just a paycheck? There's a couple things that I think about. One, I, th- I think that you got to show them this is about more than just a paycheck. Now, this might just be, they say it's a millennial thing. I, th- I think it's probably true for everybody, but especially for millennials. Millennials generally really want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. I know you mentioned that you've got a young and, and in some ways unseasoned staff. And I would show them how this is bigger than just them. You know, one of the mantras that we talk about in, in our team is that we help communities and our family stay warm and safe. And that's really what we do. It's, it's bigger than just us. You know, not only do we help communities in our, our families in our community stay warm and safe, but we actually help provide jobs for folks that, that probably wouldn't be able to get paid like this doing other things. You know, some of our installers and schedulers and, and so many people in the company rely on the work that the sales team does to, to help keep them employed. That, that's a big deal. So I would start thinking about what things that are actually bigger than any of them are they a part of. And that's something that could be really helpful. The other thing too that I would say is I would highly recommend paying people like a business owner. And so I would look at, you know, how can you start to show some transparency in the numbers and, and the dollars and the profit that they're bringing in? You got to be careful with this. But what I found is that when you can start to teach your team members how business works, 
they start to buy in. And especially if you can put them on a comp plan that pays them more as they perform more or as the company does better, they start to get a little bit more invested. And, and, and yes, it is, a, it is a paycheck, but it starts to become part of their identity as well. You know, another thing that can be really helpful is the idea of just setting expectations. It goes back to people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So I might think about taking your team members out for coffee once a month and just asking, what do you want to get out of life? You know, how can I help you get there? You know, you can say, I don't know if we've ever talked about the expectations for your job. And, and I can imagine that'd be really confusing and sometimes frustrating to, to not fully know what's expected of you. I would love to lay out these expectations because if, if you do this stuff, you can win. And, and I know that I can help get you to where you want to go. You know, Andrew, there's not a, a quick and easy answer for this, but I, I do think it's possible by setting expectations and starting to, to work with and pay people like a business owner, get them to start thinking about the business holistically, I'd imagine that that could be really helpful. I heard a guy one time from Chick-fil-A talk about the three Ps. And he says, if you can show someone the three Ps, they're going to stay with you for a long, long, long time. Maybe not forever, for a long time. Number one is purpose. To say, hey, here's the purpose of why you're here. This is what we're all about. Next is the pay. Because of the purpose and why we think this is such a big deal, we're going to pay you this way because this is really important. We want you to be taken care of to be able to create a life for yourself. The third P is the plan to say, I know that right now you're not making what you want to make, but here's what we see for you in the future. If you can do this and hit these marks, then in a year, this is where you can go. After that, you can go here. And I think that that's a really, really good mantra to have. So Andrew, hopefully you get some good advice in there about what you can do to help employees uh, become more than just people that work for a paycheck. Okay, so next up here. Oh, okay, this one's great. So this one comes from Peter Parsons at Corner Brook, Newfoundland. And I got to say that Peter, when he, we've exchanged emails and, and he's doing some really cool things out there. My buddy Grant actually met him when he went out to go speak at Compact Appliances a little while ago. But Peter is from Newfoundland and I literally had to look that up on the map. I was like, wait, where is this? And what I realized, I'm in the Pacific Northwest. I live in Portland, Oregon. And we're on the Pacific time zone that Peter is actually four hours ahead of me. It's crazy. I mean, like, almost other side of the world kind of stuff. So amazing, Peter, that you're listening to this. And I just got to say, what you're doing will make a difference. And I, I think that you are on to just some awesome stuff over there. So anyway, here's what Peter asks. He says, I believe in training. Employees must be safe on the job site with the latest fall protection, power line hazards, and other safety courses. But the courses that you pay for, like you know gas installer courses or certifications where the employer pays for the course... In those situations, the employee is the one who's certified. And if that employee leaves, they take the certification with them. So how do you convince employers to train people with specific industry training, knowing fully well that they could walk anytime and take that certification with them? Wow. Really, really good question. You know, I think it comes down to there is a part of that that's the risk of doing business, that you got to have trained people. And... I think that that what you got to do is, is you got to look at what are your alternatives. I think it was John Maxwell that talked about how in business you have two options. Option one is you can invest in your people, you can train them, you can send them to conferences, you can teach them to think like a business owner, you can pay them like a business owner, and in return, 
they get really smart, they make your company a ton of money, they're an amazing employee, and eventually they leave to go somewhere else. The alternative is you don't train your people, you don't invest in them, they stink, they suck up your payroll, and they never leave. I mean, which one of those would, would you rather have? <laughs> I mean, we all know the answer to that question. So Peter, to, to answer that, uh, I'm with John Maxwell in, in his answer there, but I, I think it goes back to the really the question that, that Andrew asked is, how can you show your team members that you're investing in them, that you have a plan for them to win? And outline and, and just ask them, hey, you know, where do you want to be in five years? What kind of money do you want to make? What position do you want to be in? And I mean, maybe they want more money than you can pay them. And, and, and I mean, maybe what you got to do is you got to put them on a, a full commission plan with sales and you say, look, if you can sell this much, you can make this much money. But, but outside of that, I can only pay you this much. So, so here's what I can do. Over the next two years, I can start teaching you these skills that you're going to need in a future job, but I'm going to teach them to you while you're working for me. And my goal over these next two years while you're preparing for your next step is that you work on hiring and training your replacement. You know, that's not a perfect answer, but that's one thing that you could do to start to grow that. But I think that, you know, to get people to buy in and to, to not move, you know, people want to be cared for. M- Money is important, but it's, it's not everything. You know, flexibility, being able to harmonize your work and your personal life, those are really important things. Feeling you're, like you're connected, like you're making a difference. And so where I would probably start, if you, if you go download my, my ebook, Roadmap to Success, chapter one is all about expectations and goal setting. And so that's something that I would just think a lot about with your team members. Go through what are the expectations, show them how they can win, teach them how to set goals. And I think that you're going to have more success than failure with that. But yeah, Peter, that's a really, really good question. And uh, oh, actually, Peter's got a follow-up question here. So he asks, when to book or not to book? Each season, sales can change, and the hearth industry can change quickly. Do you recommend to buy into booking programs for manufacturers in the spring for the fall seasons? There can be some big money tied up, and was just wondering what you guys do. Well, I might upset some people here, which is, you know, of course, not what I want to do on the podcast. <laughs> I want to be, uh, no, that's okay. I'll, I'm going to give a real opinion here. Um, it's going to be contextual to your business. There have been many businesses that have succeeded with early buys and with booking programs. We personally do not do any of it. We, we do absolutely zero. And that's the way that it's been for a while. I personally do not think that the money you save is worth the extreme risk and financial commitment of early buys. Now, this could be contextual to your business. So depending on where you are and who your distributors and manufacturers are that you work with, there might be something different where they can mitigate the risk or make it really worth your while. But where we are, we don't do that. And the reason why is because things change so quickly. They, they really do. And it can be so tough if you're a dealer and you know if you order a half million dollars worth of product from manufacturer and something becomes obsolete or there's a regulation change or, or a design change, Man, it is, you could be sitting on a lot of products. So I guess I'll preface this by saying if your manufacturer and you or your distributor can work with you to mitigate that risk, then you can turn it into a win-win situation. But what I'm not a fan of is a sales rep coming in and just saying, well, hey, when can you get your early buy? This is the way that you're going to be able to maintain your pricing. Hope you can do it. See you later. I, I'm not a fan of that. I think that I think that there's better ways to go about it. So hope that was a good answer to your question, Peter. Um, 
So the answer is contextually, it could work for your business. Personally, we do not do it. There's a lot of risk involved. Instead, what we do is we work with our manufacturers and distributors to forecast. So we talk about, hey, this is what we're going to sell this year based on last year's sales, based on where we're trying to go in the marketplace. And so if you want to ramp up your production to be in line with that, then we're going to try to take the stuff out of your barn quickly. And we found that as long as you can accurately or somewhat accurately forecast, that will work very much the same as an early buy, but there's a way to, to share the risk so it's not all on the dealer. Really good question. Uh, okay, here's just a miscellaneous question that came through from somebody else. It says, Tim, we have never set sales goals before. Where's a good place to start to set goals, give employees incentives, etc.? And... This is what I would say. So number one, if you haven't set sales goals, man, what an amazing opportunity. I would say start with yourself. So anytime you're going to do something new, absolutely start with yourself. So I would go back and look at your last five years worth of sales and see where you've been. And from there, ask yourself some questions. You know, if you've been growing a bunch, ask, well, have we been growing? What re- what's the reason? Uh, ha- has it just been with the economy? Do we think that the economy is going to slow down? Has a competitor gone out of business? Is there is there a reason that we've been getting the numbers that we have? So I'd, I'd go five years back. Then I would just make a prediction based on where you think you're going to be. And it's okay if you're off, but that's going to give you something to aim at. After that, you break it down by months of the year based on just past history. And you're going to have some goals for your overall company. From there, you can extrapolate those to salespeople. Now, another way you can do this is if you track your sales by individual salespeople, but they've never actually done it themselves, it's just been you as the boss, I would have a conversation. Again, this goes back to teaching them how to think like a business owner. I'd pull them into your office and say, you know, hey, I was was looking at your numbers for the last couple of years, and this is actually where you've been. And what what we want to do for this year, we're going to try something new, but we want to offer you the ability to get paid more as you sell more. And so... I'd like to work with you on some goal setting that if you did this the last couple of years, I, I think that you can actually grow even more than this. And I'd love to show you how we can actually increase your compensation as you go out and hit those goals and work with your team members to set their own goals based on past performance. The way that I do it personally is, you know, if a team member misses a goal for a month, uh, we're not firing them or, or anything like that. Now, if there's three months without hitting a sales goal, we're going to have a conversation and talk about it. Very often there's things that, that they can be doing differently or, or more intentionally to get those numbers up. But sometimes it falls on me as the leader and sometimes it falls on other things like how's our, how's our advertising and our marketing doing? How is our customer experience going in the smoothness in which we schedule and, and communicate? You know, I look at this as a three-pronged approach where you've got advertising and marketing on one side, you've got your, the work your salesperson does on the other side, and then finally you've got your customer experience and the smoothness of your install on the other. And those have to work together in order to get consistency and growth. But the point is, I would start to share that with your sales team and, and help work with them to forecast their own goals. And I, I think you're going to get a ton of success and a, a lot of buy-in, especially as you show them that their compensation is going to go up as their goals go up. We can dive later on into compensation. Actually, maybe we'll do an episode. Of, you know what? I, I, I'm going to say at some point in the future, we're going to do an episode on comp plans that work. So stay tuned on that. But I think there's a way to do it. You can take a look at some standard commission models. You could probably even call up your distributors, and manufacturers and say, hey, how do you guys do your comp scales? Can you show us as we're trying to get our salespeople into this? So really good question. 
Here's one from Christy in Rochester, Minnesota. And I got to say, Christy's running an amazing business out there. And she just asked the question, do you offer an extended warranty to your customers for your products? If so, how do you determine the cost? Well, Christy, this is a great question. And I got to say, no, we do not. But it's something that I've been trying to work on with our service teams. And I want to in the future because I think that this is amazing. A while back, I made a purchase of a new car exclusively because of the extended warranty. I mean, it was something where the used cars that we were looking at were almost as expensive as a new one. And the new one had a warranty that was like three times as long. It was crazy. And so we said, yeah, I mean, we're, for, for the little amount of money between them, we're absolutely going to do that. So all that said, I think it's a huge way to separate yourself from the competition. It builds credibility to how good your team is. Um, The way that I would do it is I would just go back and look at your warranty percentages historically and just look at, you know, how many fireplaces do we sell based on category? uh, How many service calls do we have? How how much do those service calls and and parts cost us? I would just divide that up and and that's going to give you the price. My encouragement would probably be to find a way to roll it into the price of your sale as opposed to sell it additional. Now, again, that's contextual. You can do that however you want. But I know that for me... If you can keep the price in the ballpark as your competition, but have the extended warranty, I mean, just speaking as a consumer, I would absolutely buy in that situation. Whereas me, very often I'm skeptical. If I have the option to purchase the extended warranty, I might say, eh, I don't know, I could probably do without it, save a couple bucks. But if it's included and you're in the same ballpark, then man, I think that that's really, really compelling. Great question. Uh, okay, question number 12. Oh, this is actually from William, who actually works at Christie's company too. William O'Neill asked this question, and he says, Tim, I'm working on a sales process. Christie mentioned you might have a seven-step sales process that has seemed to work for your company. Any chance you can share that with me? Well, <laughs> William, funny that you ask, because I teased this out a couple episodes ago, but the beginning of season three is going to be all about this sales process, all about it. So in the first seven episodes of season three, we are going to tackle the seven steps of my sales process and we're going to dive deep on it. But in the meantime, I'm going to share what those steps are. And again, you don't have to use these steps. You can create something yourself, but this is something that has been very helpful for me and it starts to give language to what you do over and over and over so you can actually give feedback and critique. So here is our seven-step sales process. Step one, greet the customer. I mean, it's not really rocket science. We know we need to greet the customer. And there's some things that I look for when when we go through the greeting. But step one, you got to greet the customer before you do anything else. And you need to practice that intentionally. Step two, understand their problem. So this is the part of the sales process that I think should take you longer than anything else because you have to take time to understand their problem. This language is intentional. It's understanding. I've heard other words to talk about this part of the sales process and I don't like them because they're very often us-centered, not customer-centered. If I'm trying to understand you so that I can help. So step two is all about understand their problem because until I understand, there's nothing of value that I can give you. So after we understand their problem, we move into step three, which is advise a solution. And again, this language is intentional because I cannot advise you until I understand what's going on. So now that we understand their problem, we move on to advise the solution. And I think about this just like a financial advisor. Financial advisor is helping you or you know whoever it is that wants to save for retirement, 
plan out steps that are going to make their life significantly better. And, and what we do is no different than that. So you're advising a solution. And this is the part where you get to talk about your products. You get to talk about your services, your installation, all based on giving the customer a solution to the problem that they have. Now, step four in our sales process is make a plan. I mentioned a few episodes ago when I was talking with Dr. J.J. Peterson on a story brand, I straight up ripped this off from him. So go out and pick up a copy of the book, Building a Story Brand. It's going to help you. And they talk about this in a marketing context, but I think in a sales process context, it helps a ton as well. Make a plan. So customers don't know how to do business with you. They don't know if there needs to be a proposal. They don't know if someone needs to come out to the house. They don't know when the install is. They don't know how many trips that takes. They don't know if there's an inspection, framing, electrical. So just make a plan and say, hey, you know, you're here in the showroom. We, we, we have this idea for this thing that's going to be an amazing solution to your problem. Here's how it's going to work. You know, step one is we'll write you up for an estimate. Step two, we'll take care of this, that, and the other. Step three, we'll do this. And step four, we'll install it. Whatever it is, but make a plan for the customer. If you can make a plan and show them how if you do this, then you do this, and then you do this, you're going to see success and you're going to have that life that you have wanted. So make a plan is step four. Step five, call to action. So now that you've made a plan, the natural thing is call to action. So whatever step one of the plan is, you call them to action right then and there. So if the plan is, hey, step one, get a free written estimate. Step two, we'll come out to your house to take a look at it. Step three, we're going to install that safely. The call to action is, so get started with an estimate today. And be totally confident in that. Be totally confident. If they say no, you always think about a next step. And, and this is something that I always talk about with my teams. There's always a next step. There's always a next step until the customer tells you, no, I do not want to do business with you or no, I decided I'm not going to do the project. Think about what the next step is. So maybe you say, so how about we write up that estimate today? You say, ah, you know, I'm, I'm just looking. I'm not, I'm not really too sure. You can say, hey, no problem at all. What if I sent you an email of some before and after pictures of this fireplace? That could look really good and it could at least get the process started. Many customers are going to say yes to that. Maybe they say no, and you got to think, and you got to think, okay, well, you know what? There's been a whole bunch of products we've looked at today. Let me do this. Let me send you all the brochures, and I can make even a little spreadsheet about what we talked about and the different features and benefits with each one, so that way when you're at home, you're not just rooting through a bunch of catalogs that you can't make sense of. you got this spreadsheet to kind of help you, you figure it out. If you, if you can keep establishing a next step, those are actually all calls to action. They're saying, are you ready to buy from me? And the customer says no. And you say, okay, well, well, what if I gave you this piece of information? When they say yes, the customer is saying, I'm not ready to buy from you, but I'm getting closer and I'm getting closer. I'm getting closer. Keep massaging that. And there's always a next step. Now with this, you need to make sure that you're giving value every time. Don't just, don't just waste the customer's time, but always establish a next step. So step five in the sales process is call them to action. It's the reason that they're coming to see you. Step six is pursue. And this is just about follow-up. Pursue the job. You know, in the episode that I did about Closing Commander, I mean, Closing Commander is just an unbelievable tool that you can use, but there's all kinds of things that you can do to stay on top of that. And sales is about pursuit. It, it really is. And, and I would say that, again, going back to it, the salespeople that follow up are the salespeople that win. And if you're someone that's not following up with your customers, I'm sorry, you're just an order taker. You're not a salesperson. Because salesperson, or to be a salesperson it's a game of follow-up. It's a game of arithmetic and communication and self-awareness over and over and over again. So 
Step six is you pursue that job. Step seven is gratitude. After the customer has done business with you, find a way to show gratitude. A Starbucks card, a Target card, you know, a thank you letter. Do something. Ask for a referral. Say, you know, I can't believe that, that this turned out so good. Thank you for the opportunity. Is there anybody else you know of that, that needs this same service? But show gratitude. If you can follow those seven steps, you're going to win. I know that's our very quick overview, and we're going to dive deep on that next season. Okay, last part of this episode here comes from Jim Adams out of Spokane, Washington. And I got to give a shout out to Jim. Jim actually sent me a copy of a parenting book recently that has just been unreal. I've been going through it and I'm loving it. So Jim, thanks for looking out for me there. So Jim, this is a comment that he had. And I think, I think it's really cool. He says this, he, said, he writes me and says, Tim, so I walked into a dealer today. He was in the process of talking to a customer about a particularly tricky removal and replacement of a gas fireplace. He was quoting a unit that I sell, so I helped him through some details and we came up with a quote all in about 15 minutes. I wish I was recording the conversation because when he gave his customer the quote, the first words out of her mouth were verbatim, finally, someone who can solve my problem. She didn't even balk at the price. It opened up a great door to talk with my dealer later about customers wanting speed, convenience, and someone who simply tries to figure out their problem and work towards a solution. Blessings. Jim, that's the heart of it. That is the heart of this podcast is helping make it so stupidly easy to do business with us that there's no excuse not to. In this case, Jim was there. They worked with this client in a way that was fast. That was convenient. They took the roadblocks out of the way. They helped her. They presented her the quote. And they made it so easy. And she said, finally, someone can solve my problem. And she purchased. I want to end the Q&A on that note because I think that that is just an amazing story. And I think that there's stories like this popping up all over North America as people are starting to think about how can I work with this in a way that makes sense to the consumer? How can I make it easy, painless, and fast for them? So first of all, thank you to everybody who has listened to this. I mean, just amazing. Thank you to the people that sent their questions in. I mean, I think that there's a ton of value in these episodes, and I know that you might think your question only applies to you, but I guarantee that people all over the place have these same questions, and they are benefiting from you writing. So with that in mind, we are going to put a bow on season two. I know I've mentioned it, but thank you so much for listening. We are going to come back in September. I believe it's going to be the Tuesday after Labor Day with season three. We are going to jump right into the seven steps of the sales process that you need to understand. We're going to dive deep with amazing guests. The second half of season three, oh my gosh, it's going to be incredible. I got something up my sleeve to show you guys, and there's going to be a big announcement. If this podcast has been a blessing for you, if you've loved the content and you are benefiting from it, you are going to absolutely love what's in store. But in the meantime, as you go out, I want you to know that what you are doing matters. What you're doing matters. You're supporting loved ones. You're building something bigger than yourself. You're keeping your customers warm and safe. You're helping them make memories in front of an amazing fireplace that's bringing their family together. The work that you're doing now is not in vain. It might feel sometimes like you're on an island. You might feel like you're alone. But I want you to know that you're not alone. If this podcast has showed me anything, 
there are thousands and thousands of people out there in this industry that know what it's like and that want to be a part of the solution. So with all that in mind, I am so thankful for everyone that's listened to this. I cannot wait to see you in season three. Stay tuned. There's going to be a couple bonus episodes that just pop up here throughout the course of the summer. But as always, in the meantime, if you need anything from me, send me an email. My address is tim at itsfiretime.com. That's tim at itsfiretime.com. Thank you so much. Go out and be a blessing. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by In Bloom out of Portland, Oregon. We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time.